You're tuned into 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where I speak with graduate students and other students about their research on Berkeley campus and around the world. And today is a special edition episode coming from South Africa. So I'm in South Africa doing research, looking at the fossil collections at the University of Fitzwater-Rand. Did I say that correct? Um, yeah, you can. it's Fitzwater-Rand, but it's fine. Fitzwater-Rand? Yeah. And uh, today I have the very good fortune to be speaking with Kalita Shadrach, who is here at UVITS. I can just call it UVITS, right? Yeah, you can. Or oh, just bits, whatever you want. Bits, just bits. Okay, <laughs> perfect. And um, yeah, so this is very cool. This is the first time I've done an interview outside of Berkeley and outside of the United States. Mm -hmm. And so thank you for coming to speak with me today. Thank you for asking me. Of, of course, of course, my pleasure. So I guess we'll just start by having you introduce yourself a little bit and telling us. So you are from South Africa? I am. I'm born and bred in South Africa and I'm currently studying a BSc Honours in Archaeology at FITS. My project is focused on uh, earlier Stone Age, so I really like the earliest old kind of stuff, basically. I'm in my uh, fourth year, but my first year postgrad, and so, uh, yeah, basically. Yeah, and so are you from Johannesburg? I am. Haven't moved out from Johannesburg yet. Yeah. So, <laughs> are you yeah, planning? But, you know, maybe sometime. Hopefully we'll see where this takes me. Yeah. So you said your first year postgrad. Yes. Does that mean uh, is this your last year or how many years postgrad? Um, so uh, postgrad for honors is one year, and then your master's is about two years, and your PhD is somewhere between like three and five years. So um, I finished my degree, which was a BA in archaeology. Actually, I finished that last year. It was a three-year degree, and so I'm now um, actually entered into the science faculty officially as a BSc honors student. Well, congratulations. Thank you. So I guess I should start by asking, why is archaeology so important in South Africa? I think personally the reason I was attracted to it is because I think um, Southern Africa as a whole has such a rich archaeological record. I mean, time span-wise, it covers such a huge amount of time and so many periods from your earlier Stone Age all the way through to your prehistoric stuff. And it's just a huge, vast amount of material that is available and a lot of which is preserved. And so I think it's really important that not only do um, actual South Africans study it, I think it's important to develop an interaction between international um, specialists and South Africans because essentially, you know, everyone should be allowed to participate and sort of um, understand the archaeology that we have. And can you give us a sense of when the Stone Age is, like what time we're talking about? Um, well, specifically the earlier Stone Age here, which uh, begins with the older one, is dated to about 2. Point, it's dated to 2.18 million years in um, Stathmontane, and then that moves into the Shulian, and then you get the MSA, which is also recorded here, and then the LSA. So about 2.2 over here. Okay. But um, that's stone tool-wise. Before that, we obviously have Australopithecus, which is dated to a lot older. So these different uh, Stone Age names, is it, how do you tell them apart? Is it just based on the dating, or is there a style? Um, yeah, it's typological, so technotypological. So, for example, in my project I'll tell you about a little later, um, you sort of identify diagnostic features that are associated with particular industries. And also... Um, the older one and these various industries are also um, present in East Africa, so you have like a comparative um, database to work with. But like the older one's a little more um, simple, if you will. I don't like that word, 
but it is not as fancy as your later stuff because obviously um, tool production becomes a little more progressive over time. So you definitely can identify different styles. So we're talking yeah. mostly about stone tools. Right? Yeah, stone tools. But also importantly is you, in regards to dating of material, it's often by association as well. So if you're um, finding, say, a hominid specimen, you can confidently associate that date-wise to the material that's found in it um, in regards to stone tools, vice versa. Yeah. So what kind of tools were people using like two million years ago? Uh, stones. <laughs> Stone tools. So basically you have what is called a core. A core, core is your, um, what you're using to strike off flakes. Flakes is essentially what was used for your cutting and scraping. And then into your Acheulean, which follows the older one, at about 1.7 to 1.4 million years. And that's more what we call LCTs, which is large cutting tools. So it's like your hand axes, your cleavers, your picks. So there's a, like a progression that continues. And then by the time you get to the LSA, you have these small little points that are a couple of centimetres big and um, long, and they have like hundreds of flake scars on them. So, yeah. And is this all different kinds of stone material? Or? Um, it varies in by region, I'd say, but stack contains specifically, you're looking at your quartz and quartzite. So, yeah, you're definitely identifying your raw materials in association to your assemblage. So for example, at Stagontain specifically, um, the quartz and quartzite was procured from the river gravels, from the Low Bank River, which is about 300 to 500 meters away from the site. So this material was actually brought in and Stagontain's actually assemblages on-site flaking. So uh, yeah, definitely. So you've mentioned Sturkfontein a few times. Yes. Can you tell us why that cave is so important? Um, Sturkfontein has yielded uh, the largest and most complete older one assemblage found in southern Africa. So the member 5 deposit, which is exposed on the landscape, it's essentially the primary deposit, has yielded some 3,513 artefacts. So it's quite a huge assemblage to have. It's important because the material from Sturkfontein once you understand the processes and you know you're understanding what type of material is coming out of these assemblages, you're understanding the behavior of hominids at that particular time. But even beyond that, um, beyond the technological practices of hominids, it tells you so much about the actual um, processes that were active at the time. For example, the depositional and post-depositional process within the caves can tell you about the paleoclimate and the environments and the faunal material tells you about the kind of animals that are there. So these assemblages aren't solely just um, stone tools, it's sort of stratigraphic indicators as well. So it's like your technology, your formal material and your hominid remain. So it's really important. And how long has work been going on at Sturkfontein? Um, well, the paleoanthropological significance at Sturkfontein was really recognised in after 1913 because between 1896 and 1913, lime mining activity, actually like the blasting, um, exposed a lot of the faunal mater fossil material. Sorry, and so people realised, you know, this is really important. So in 1936, um, Robert Broom found the first Australopithecus, and so that really um, sort of got uh, staff contain a lot of um, attention. So I'd say around the early 20th century. And, yeah. and so you do your, most of your work at Sturkfontein? All of my work at Sturkfontein, yeah. Is that how you got interested in archaeology? Or oh, no, not at all. Actually, <laughs> I was um, one of those people who weren't really um, planning on going into archaeology. It was sort of, I fell into it. I knew I was always going to be doing something environmentally orientated, 
But as far as sort of playing in the sand and calling it a profession, that's not really what I planned on doing. But I took it as a filler in undergrad and I just fell in love with it. I was like, it's fine, I don't need a future plan, this is my plan now. And that's, I just continued with it. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about your project then? You said okay. it's all happening at Stripfontaine. Yes. So is it in the caves or is it in the lab or maybe both? Okay. Um, it will be soon, I'll tell you. So um, my project's firstly funded by PAST, which is the Paleontological Scientific Trust. And I also now have funding from the National Research Foundation, NRF, which is really a major body in South Africa. Um, so the title of my project is Clarifying the Distribution of the Oldermann Stone Tools Handage found within the underground chambers of the Stagfontaine Caves. And so my site specifically is 38 meters below um, the surface. It is the deepest point of the cave, so it's on par with the um, lake, the underground lake. And so um, essentially what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to link the three, three major deposits, or well, the two major deposits to my deposit. The member five, which is exposed on the landscape, the name chamber, which is below the member five and articulated to via a 12 meter vertical shaft. And then my deposit, which is below the name chamber, is basically made up of the far western talus. So that's just the deposit of the name chamber. So I'm just trying to associate these deposits. Previous excavation was done on my site, so my site on the talus, by Dr. Dominic Stratford in 2011. And it did yield um, artifacts that are of resemblance to the older one. My project is essentially attempting to enlarge the size of the assemblage from this area in order to make a more conclusive and accurate comparative study. And how do you work in a cave? I mean, I went, I had the fortune, uh, you know, Dr. Dominic Strafford took me down into the cave to look at it and it's pretty dark. It's, it's pretty far underground. How, how do you work in a, an environment like that? Um, I was warned about the harsh conditions and I didn't really take it seriously until I started excavating, which was in about the end of November last year, 2014. You just take each day as it comes because when, the one thing I've learned is you can't predict a lot of this stuff in regards to the accumulation and the deposits in there. And so I ask a lot of questions and I double check everything and I go really slowly, basically, and... It's just important to identify the features and before you sort of excavate or go any further in regards to, you know, continuing to remove material, just think about two steps ahead and what this will cause because it's a very um, sort of temperamental uh, site. So quick excavating is not possible at all. It has to be very precise and very slow. But also because the deposits I'm working with are very different from one another. For example, the first deposit is an anthropogenic deposit, which just means it's accumulated through human activity. Of course, not hominids, but um, the lime mining activity really influenced this deposit. Whereas my second deposit is an in situ deposit, which just basically means it's a natural rapid accumulation. That's what it's described as. And so you handle various deposits differently. But apart from that, I just research as much as possible. So can you paint a picture of what it's like down there? I mean, I know you wear a helmet yes. with a light on it. What are some other tools that you might okay. have? Well, I'll start off with saying you have to walk down some 189 stairs to get to my sides. Once you're down there, um, we generally have, for the first deposit, for example, we had like pickaxes that we were using to just break through the crust. 
Apart from that, we use trowels, leaf trowels, um, lots of buckets, lots of dustpans. Um, in regards to lighting, because obviously that would be the major issue underground, we do have a light that connects to a power source, thankfully, that I didn't have from the beginning of the excavation, but I do now. And yeah, photographs are really important. We take lots of photographs because we're making use of photogrammetry, especially with my, with my project specifically, which is important. Um, photogrammetry allows you to make 3D models off your site. And it's often a lot more clear to look at a screen than it is to actually look at the thing in front of you because of the lighting issues. Can you tell me what photogrammetry is? Um, photogrammetry allows you to build 3D models using photos on the computer. So essentially you're actually creating a 3D model of your excavation that you can move around that's um, it's accurate in every sense of the word. Stratigraphically, colour-wise, um, size-wise, you can put scales in. So you're actually looking at a model that you can work off of in regards to where needs to be excavated, where it doesn't need to be excavated. Identifying erosion channels, for example, we have one in my excavation. So it's just a really good database to have away from the site. So you're like taking your excavation with you, you get home and you can research using it. Can you tell us a little bit about how these materials accumulated? You oh, said some were yeah. in situ, some were anthropogenic, but... Yeah. Okay, so the talus that I'm working on has four deposits. So it's T1, T2, T3, and T4. Dr. Stratford excavated all four for his um, PhD thesis in 2011. However, I'm only focusing on T1 and T2, so I'll tell you a little bit about them. East of the talus, there was a huge stalactite. So stalactite is the speleothem that grows from the roof of caves. And lime mining activity resulted in the blasting of the stalactite as lime is really useful in the metallurgical process in regards to gold. It helps dissolve and extract gold. So um, that's why basically the activity was at Stagfontaine. However, this material that they were blasting, a lot of it just fell down slope and was left there. Interestingly, um, for, so this is for the T1 deposit, while they were blasting, they were also removing fossiliferous deposits, which fossiliferous is just fossil-bearing soft sediments which was in the area, which is called the name chamber. So you have four events of blasting and fine material. And so this is very interesting because in the T1 deposit, even though it's anthropogenic, in the fossiliferous deposits, we've yielded four hominid specimens. All of which have been identified as possibly being homeogaster by Professor Ron Clark, who of course found um, Littlefoot. So yes, that's very interesting. And after the T1 deposit, you have the T2 deposit, which is a natural accumulation. It's a colluvial accumulation. Colluvial just means that it's moved down slope naturally, only with a very thin sheet of water. So it's not um, alluvial at all. Alluvial is associated with uh, water flow, a lot of water flow. And so this is important because this is our in-situ deposit, and we've recovered all 11 of our artifacts from this deposit. So the 11 artifacts that we have recovered from T2 have been two maniports, two quartz cores, two quartzite cores, a split flake, and then three quartzite flakes, and one quartzite flake. That's essentially the assemblage size at the moment. It's interesting because um, although the excavations, the two excavations that Dominic did and I'm now doing, are only about 50 centimeters away from each other, because of the different um, features within them, they look very different. For example, a lot of the class, which are just rocks, 
have a lot of matrix within them, whereas mine, because of the erosion, erosional channel, um, the sediment's been washed out. So it looks very different, although it's the same deposits. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where I speak with students around the world. Today I'm speaking with Kalita Shadrach at the University of Witwatersrand, which I can't say appropriately, so we'll just call it Wits. And uh, she's telling us all about her BSc Honors work in archaeology here in South Africa. So, you know, you talked about a little bit about the accumulation, but people shouldn't think that these are like cavemen, right? No, people, Nobody was not. living no. in the caves. Um, it's about 2.18 million years. There was no cave dwelling at all. This only occurs very late into um, the MSA. And LSA, obviously, LSA, you know, people who hunter gatherers were using the sites. But at 2.18 million, absolutely not. So this is a natural accumulation. So basically what happened was on the landscape surface, you have these deposits that um, the artifacts and the bones from the landscape are washing into with the sediments and they're mixing. And then as um, the caves start to open naturally, these deposits are being washed into them. And this is how they're accumulating. But basically, because of the erosion within the caves, so you do have water moving through the caves, and you have collapses, you have the sediment being split up and moving down or moving away from one another. So often you have the exact same deposits in the area, but separated. For example, in the name chamber, which I explained was one of the major sources of my uh, material, you have three taluses, but two of which are actually the same material, just separated by a feature. So um, this is a natural accumulation. No one's sort of going in and pouring sediments in or anything like that. It's just being washed in from the landscape. So you mentioned hominids and obviously the stone tools. What other sorts of things do you guys find down there? Faunal material is a huge component of the assemblages. For example, at my uh, site specifically, we've recovered a piece of horse bone fragments which is dated to about 2.4 million years in East Africa. And that's really important when you're finding these specific species because then you can do relative dating with East African assemblages, which allows you to date actual um, stratigraphic layers like that. But it's generally just your hominid material, your formal material, and your artifacts. So once you dig them up and excavate them, uh, what do you do with the materials then? Okay, Um, recording specifically happens before we remove anything. So when we find um, anything important, such as your bones, um, your artifacts, or your class with a flat base, a class is a rock, we plot it using a total station. A total station provides us with um, precise recording. So it essentially builds a digital grid. So we can take that and put it on a computer and actually see where everything's plotted within the actual excavation. Apart from that, we do manual recording as well, so it's like drawing profiles. And only then after that do we bag it and tag it. (laughs) And after that, it stays in the staff contain labs. And once I've completed my excavation, which is going to be pretty soon, I'm then going to analyze all of it. And I'm going to look at specific attributes and features. And I'm going to catalog it on on the computer. And then that will allow me to have a database to compare to the other assemblages which have been catalogued. So that's how I analyze my data. So what sort of attributes are you looking for? Um, For example, flake scars, um, flake terminations, if it's a core, what cause it is, what flake it is, things like that. Can you say a little bit about archaeology here at WITS and the program? 
So archaeology is offered to both BA students and BSc students, which is really important because you have two different, you have a social, someone with a social science background and a science background interacting. So I found that very helpful. We have a range of areas people are allowed to um, specialise in in a postgrad degree. So we have everything from your early stone age to your rock art to your prehistoric history. Um, so we do have quite a lot of areas that are covered. We have some of the top specialists, like Lee, that um, teach us. We do both tutorials and practicals in undergrad, as well as in your honours year, you do have coursework. And it's really important because in the practical specifically, you're learning really important skills, like field techniques, lithic drawing. So I've mostly been in the hominid vault, which is awesome, yeah. of course. But you guys must have uh, archaeology collections here at Bits as well. Um, yes. Uh, so in over at Origin Centre, that we do have the practical teaching room, which does have a, a lot of the assemblages from various places. That thankfully, like the practicals I was telling you about, that we teach, we actually use real material from sites that have been excavated to show um, students. So we do have quite a collection over there. We also have a great museum <laughs> over there as well. Yeah. Um, and um, a lot of the labs in regards to uh, botany as well as rock art, it's all over that side. What are, so what are you thinking about? In ter- how long is the honours program and what are you thinking about afterwards? Um, the honours program is just a year. Um, I'm definitely going to do masters. It will either be here or overseas. I haven't decided yet, but it will hopefully be in early Stone Age. I'd like to specialise in lithics, so lithics are stone tools specifically. I don't have any actual plans yet, but definitely a master's and definitely in ESA. So going back, we sort of addressed this at the beginning, but what makes lithics in South Africa so important, especially when talking about the rest of the world or even East Africa or the rest of Africa? Because I know South Africa is a very special place for paleontology Mm. and archaeology. The material found in South Africa represents ancestral species of humans specifically. Hence, um, South Africa is described as being the cradle of humankind. And this is really significant not only for South Africans, but for the rest of the world, because this is where our species originated from. And the materials in regards to artifacts that are associated with these species is described as one of the first cultural developments. And I think it's just incredible that you know we have access to the first cultural material. We're actually at the beginning of when things were being produced. And I think it's just really significant and interesting and very exciting to be in the place where um, there was such a huge leap and there was a sort of, the threshold was crossed in regards to developing and becoming a more progressive species that's essentially led us to where we are. And I think I'm very lucky to have this project and to be working in South Africa. Of course, there's so, so many amazing specimens but um, can you say a little bit about the preservation here and, and why the preservation is so good that makes it different from other parts of Africa? Well, I think that specifically in Sacramento, a lot of the material has been found in breccia. So a lot of it's actually been like sort of cemented in. So it hasn't been broken down a lot or eroded or um, weathered. For example, the formal material I'm finding in the softer material of my sides sort of just breaks in your hand. But a lot of the um, actual um, hominid specimens have been really well preserved in the actual sediments it's in. So we're actually getting a little low on time, but I want to make sure and ask, is there anything else about your project that you want to tell us? 
yeah, at the moment it's the only active project at Stackfontaine. I think another one starting up towards the middle of the end of the year, towards the end of the year rather. And yeah, I'm just very fortunate to be a lady working at Stackfontaine. Is that rare? I'm the first lady to excavate underground. Wow, <laughs> yeah. wow I didn't know that. Uh, I didn't know that until like three weeks ago. So yeah, um, and interestingly, the specialists that have worked at Stackfontaine, um, such as Dr. Dominic Stratford, Kathy, Professor Kathleen Kuman, and Professor Ron Clark, um, you're still able to interact with them. So you still have that sort of um, source of knowledge there to help and guide you. And so they've been helping me throughout my project. And can you also uh, summarize your thoughts again on why on on South Africa and you know what's so you know, what's so important about South Africa, but why this country is so exceptional and what sort of science you know we should be reading about from South Africa and just why this is such a great place for archaeology and paleontology. Um, I don't know how to answer your question. <laughs> That's okay. I mean, is there anything that? If you knowing that a lot of people in California are going to hear this interview, is there anything you you want Californians and people in the United States to know about science in South Africa or just the um, people of South Africa? I think science is growing a lot in South Africa, and what exception what's really exceptional is that it's growing in different groups and classes in South Africa. So you're interacting with people from different backgrounds, from different areas, from different countries. A lot of the time within Southern Africa in general. And I think that's creating a lot of um, relationships in regards to building a more scientific and technological-based um, circle and discipline in a university specifically. And yeah, apart from that, come over to South Africa, visit, and yeah, especially the universities, we're very open and uh, more than prepared to show you around and stuff. And would you have any advice for students, younger students who are thinking about science or research? Um, I think the one thing that I've learned and that's really helped me is to always ask. Because if you don't ask for opportunities, the answer is always going to be no. And so often, especially in science and technology-based um, disciplines, no one's going to go out and find you. You have to go to them and you need to be like, I don't have these skills or I do have these skills, but either way I'm prepared to learn teach me and more often than not um, someone will give you an opportunity and they will help you along the way so that would be my biggest advice yeah no that's great advice <laughs> and I guess just as a last question uh, do you have any last words you want you might want to make sure and say about um, your work or just about your experiences anything um, I'm grateful to have been given such a wonderful opportunity I would like to thank Dr. Dominic Stratford and Bits, as well as PAST and NRF, for um, allowing me and funding me in this um, adventure, because this is essentially what it has been for me. Um, it's not at the end yet, but um, yeah, basically. Okay, thank you very much, Kalita. So, uh, yeah, you've been listening to The Graduates interview talk show here on 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and today I've been speaking with Kalita Shadrach. Uh, who's a BSc honors student here at WITS, and she's been telling us all about her work looking at stone tools from Sturkfontein and just describing the cave to us and describing archaeology in South Africa, and it's been a pleasure speaking to you, Kalita. Thank you so much. My my pleasure. So uh, stay tuned. You're listening to 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley.